Well, good morning, church. Um, welcome to our neighbors. I am glad to be with you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Michael. Um, we've been going through a series that's called Who Are We? And wrestling with, the, or wrestling with or trying to come to grips with what is our identity? How do we define ourselves? And can we find our identity in God's story? Um, and I want to approach it from a little bit of a sideways. Uh, it's going to feel like I'm coming at it from a sideways angle, but I hope it'll make sense as we go forward. Um, think about your calendar. All right, some of you have already broken out in a cold sweat. I'm with you. I was joking with Carlos this week. I said, hey, I feel like the one burden, the thing that I'm constantly wrestling down and trying to master is my calendar. And, and Carlos looked at me. He said, son, I'm so sorry that you feel like you shouldn't have to do that. But the rest of us are wrestling with it, too. <laughs> so I appreciate that dose of humility from my brother Carlos. Um, when you think about your calendar and you think about things getting shuffled around and getting double booked and all of the stress that goes with trying to plan things out, um, what would you say are my non-negotiables? What are the things that absolutely cannot be moved on my calendar? I don't have like a ton of them. Um, I've got a couple and usually they're, they're bigger items. Like usually it's something that is, is tied to a holiday season or something like that. So. Um, maybe you've got a, a, a Thanksgiving meal that you have, you have it in the same house, you have the exact same dishes, you eat at the exact same time because that's the way that grandma did it and we're going to do it for the rest of our lives. Like that is a non-negotiable. It's not Thanksgiving if it's not 3 p.m. and we're eating the green stuff that nobody really likes. That's a non-negotiable. This is, this is a, a marker that we have in our year to remember something important. And maybe it's important that I'm actually like related to these people by blood and I can't get away from them. And sometimes we need that reminder. Um, but I think uh, our calendar actually says a lot about us uh, as people. Um, in the same way that what we spend our money tells us a lot about what we value, what we, put, what our, what we give our time to says a lot about the kind of people that we are. And God's actually going to open up and he's going to begin to, to shape people by what he puts on their calendar. So uh, we're, going to open up, um, we're going to open up to Exodus chapter 12. But before you do that, I know you want to get there. We'll get there. Before you do that, let's pause real quick um, and let's just pray together. It's our habit together to begin the week, the first day of the week, uh, in prayer the way that Jesus asked us to pray, uh, modeled for us to pray. Um, so the words are on the screen if you'd like to pray out loud, but I'd invite you to, at the very least, bow your hearts and let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You can open up to Exodus, and we're going to begin in Exodus chapter 12, if you want to navigate there, Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. If you want to use the blue Bibles, they're kind of tucked under the chairs uh, in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, and you'd like that one, then you can write your name in the cover and just take it with you. It'd be a gift to you. It's on page 67 in the blue Bibles. Exodus chapter 12. As, we have, uh, as we've gone through this series, we're in the fourth week, and we've been telling the story of God's work in one particular family. 
And God actually showed up to this family that was 12 brothers, um, and he blesses them. He gives them uh, kids. He gives them a, a meaningful work to do. And the more that God blesses this family, actually, the more they draw attention to the, to the, the place where they're from the government of the place that they're living in. So they're from a different land, but they're living in a land of Egypt. And as God blesses them, um, Egypt looks at them and says, why, why are there so many of them? We can't control this population. And the more God blesses these people, the more Egypt oppresses them. And every time God gives them another level of blessing, Egypt gives them another level of oppression and opposition, even to the point where they're murdering their children. But we must not mistake, and, and this goes on for, for generations, for a long, long time, where God's blessing, but then it causes more pain. But we must not mistake God's silence for apathy. Even though it goes on for a long time, and even though it seemed like God was quiet, he was working on something in the background. He had a purpose that he was working out. Um, and he raises up a leader, and the leader's really interesting. His name is Moses. He was born a Hebrew. He was born uh, a descendant of these 12 brothers. Um, but he was actually raised in Pharaoh's house, in, in the headquarters of the government of the city they were living in. So he, he knew he was born this way, but he went to school here, and he worked here. And he had this conflict within himself about where do I belong? Who am I, and, and what am I going to do? And so he finally one day comes to the point, he says, well, if God's not going to do anything about this, I'm going to do something about it. And he strikes an Egyptian and kills him. But he's rejected by the people that he would fight for. He wants to fight for the Israelites. And they say, we don't actually want you. You're going to cause more trouble for us. So he runs off, and he runs away. But God, in his mercy, comes, and he invites Moses again to be a part of what God wants to do. But we must not mistake God's invitation for need. God does not need us, but he, by his grace, invites us to be a part of what he's doing. And Moses goes, and his brother Aaron goes with him and speaks for him. Um, and, and then we looked together last week at how God decimates, completely decimates, every false hope of the Egyptians. Um, we talked through a little bit at length uh, about the, the plagues. We know them as the ten plagues of Egypt. Um, but I argued for the case that it's not just plagues. It's not just God showing off with fireworks and showing how powerful he is for the sake of showing off his power. They actually, he's actually directing all of his... Uh, conflict towards Egyptian deities, false gods um, that had uh, different authorities over different things. So each of the plagues targets a false god in Egypt. And if you want, I think there's a couple more of those charts out there if you missed that last week. Um, but he, he turns the Nile River to blood. He brings swarms of frogs. He turns the earth, he turns the dust into biting gnats and flies swarm and cattle get diseases and, and the people are afflicted with painful boils. There's a severe hailstorm that kills all their crops or breaks all of their crops and then locusts show up and eat what was left after the hail and finally he sends a giant dust storm that makes it dark for three days and nobody can do anything. But he's decimating all the false hopes. But we must not mistake God's judgment as senseless. He has a point. He's not just doing it to show off. He's trying to teach people that you cannot trust in these false gods. I am the one that you can trust. And God knows that our calendar really, in a lot of ways, defines us. And so he says to these people, what I'm about to do is going to completely recalibrate your calendars. 
So, Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. And as we go through this morning, I'm going to read a couple of verses. I'm, I'll tell you where I'm going. I'm going to go from chapter 12 to chapter 16. And I can't read all of that, so I'm just going to read like two or three verses from the chapters as we go ahead so we can get the gist of the story and how it moves along. So chapter 12, Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord, Yahweh, said to Moses and to Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be for you the first month of the year. Or it shall be the first month of the year for you. So God says here in chapter 12, what I'm getting ready to do is going to completely shift your calendar. So this thing that's happening probably around April-ish is actually going to start your year. Your year, New Year's celebrations are all going to be around this thing that I'm getting ready to do. So mark your calendars, shift them around. Everybody else is going to operate by one calendar, but you guys are going to have one, or you guys are going to have a different calendar that's related to what I am doing in you. So what is he going to do? Like nothing's happened yet. Um, let's look at what he does in chapter 12 and verse 29. Just flip the page to 68. Verse 29. At midnight, Yahweh struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Go up out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve Yahweh as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. And the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses had told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, and Yahweh had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. So, the people are delivered out of slavery. They're delivered out of this hostile bondage situation. And they go out with money. So it's, it's, it's one thing to like let somebody out of prison and let them go free. Like You can go free, but you've been in prison for years and years and years. You don't have anything to go with you. So not only does God deliver them, but he also sends them out with a bunch of treasure. Because as God strikes the firstborn, the Egyptians realize God's power is not limited to nature and things that are outside of my house. He's reached into my house and he's taken my son. What's to stop him from coming for me? If he's done this, then surely he's getting ready to just kill all of us. And then what are we going to do? So... Go, get out of the land and take all of my money with you. Take my gold, take my silver. Like, I will pay you to leave. I do not want you here. I don't care what Pharaoh says, although Pharaoh's on the same page. I want you gone. Get out of my neighborhood. What's interesting is he says later on in this chapter, in verses 37 and 40, that they go out as a mixed multitude. They go out as a mixed multitude as they're leaving. And that could be a reference to the fact that they went with their cows and their kids, like everybody together went out together. But I'm, I'm, I'm suspicious, and I wonder, based upon some of the things that happened later on in the story, I think there are some Egyptians that got the memo. That everything that I put my faith in growing up and trusting in, that these things are all dead. And they lead to death. 
and that if I want to live, then I need to follow Yahweh. And so I think that mixed multitude isn't just the Egyptians, the descendants of the 12 sons that are going out. I think there are some Egyptians that got on that bandwagon and said, I'm going too. I'm not staying around here in the land of death. I'm going on and I'm going to follow them. I don't know where they're going. I don't know what they're going to do, but it's better than staying here. And they leave quick. Their bread doesn't have time to rise. They, they leave their bread in their kneading bowls. It's like, okay, just bring the oven with you. Like, we don't have time to bake bread. Bread takes a long time. Did anybody do bread in, like, COVID era? Like, I'm going to do some sourdough. Like, the reason why we did that as an activity, because we had a ton of time. And they're just like, yo, we don't have time. Just grab the lump and let's go. We got to run. So God delivers them. He blesses them with, with enough uh, treasure and resources to be able to live. And he does it quick. He does it overnight. Take the oven and the kitchen, she- kitchen sink with you. And God says they were there for 430 years. We must not mistake God's silence for apathy. 430 years. I have a hard time wrapping my head around that kind of a generational shift. And everything I knew growing up, and now everything my grandpa knew, and everything his grandpa knew, but now it's all going to be different? What, what, what does the future hold? But this moment is going to become a defining mark for these people. In chapter 12 and verse 51, it closes out this chapter. On that very day, the Lord Yahweh brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. In chapter 13, four more times, he's going to say, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. The first commandment, the Ten Commandments we're relatively familiar with, the first commandment, I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. No less than 87 times throughout the rest of the story, God's going to say, I need you to remember what I did for you, and your relationship to me is my deliverance of you. This is the defining mark of who you are going to be as a people. When we talk about how to relate to God, I need you to remember that I am Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You had no power or no, no ability to control the Nile River. You had no ability to control the economic stability of Egypt. You had no ability to control your health or the health of your neighbors. You had no ability to control the education system of the greatest country in the world at the time. And yet I delivered you out from underneath all of those things to show that I am the living God and I will go ahead of you if you will walk with me. This deliverance will be the defining characteristic of who you are as a people. So are we defined by God's work of salvation? When I ask the question, when I pose the, the sermon series, who are we? What came to your mind first? My mom, my father, my husband, my worker. I'm poor, I'm rich, I'm well-dressed, people like me, I'm an extrovert. I'm an introvert, I need you to stop asking me so many questions, please, Mike. (coughs) Who are we? And are we defined by God's work of salvation? Neighborhood church, 
We put Jesus first. We are defined by God's work of salvation. He, we center everything on his love and grace because he alone has set us free. And there's so many, so many conversations about what we need to build our identity on and the identity that we must build our identity on, the foundation that we must build our identity on is the work that God has done. I was barely even there. In fact, I was working against him. He was showing himself strong, and I was throwing rocks, and I was saying he shouldn't do it. And while I was still his enemy, he loved me and gave his son that I might be right with him. And that is my identity. Not my works, not my goodness, not my ability to speak clearly and be understood or be compelling, but his work. Not my ability to earn or or pull myself up by my bootstraps or make sure that everybody's doing what I want them to do, but his work in saving me. Are we defined by God's work of salvation? Man, okay, I'm realizing now, I thought I only had two sermons in this sermon, but I'm realizing now I have three, so, so bear with me. They all are gonna connect together. Um, but I want us to see where he ends up with this. Chapter 13, verse 17, When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Equipped for battle. So they go out. They're, they're leaving. They've never, they've never left before, but they're going now. And as they go, God says, I'm not going to take them by the straight road that goes directly where they need to go because there's more powerful nations there. And these are people who've never, uh, who've never been in battle. They don't know how to do they have. They've got the weapons. They're equipped for battle, but they've never done it before. They've been slaves their whole life. They've been I.I. captain, but never like, okay, let's go charge that hill. And so rather than take them into a place of conflict, I'm going to lead them by a different way. God's still caring for them, but they've never seen combat. And he, he's so gracious in that he, he becomes for them their GPS. In verses 21 and 22, And Yahweh went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people of God. So there's a a, a big column of either smoke or cloud, and then there's a fire, like there's something out in front. And I'm not quite sure where we're going, but I can see where that thing is going, and I'm going to follow it. And I might not have all the understanding of what God's doing, but I'm going out and I'm following that. But Pharaoh is back in, uh, in Egypt and he's watching him leave. You know he's watching him leave. Come on. He's watching him leave. He didn't ever want to let it go to begin with. So he's watching him go and he sees him go and he's muttering under his breath and he's upset about his son and he sees him and they go out and then they turk, take that left-hand turn. What? The road's right there. What do you mean? You can't just go where you said you were going to go. You don't even know how to drive. 
Like, you don't know how to get to where you're going. You guys are already lost. You're 10 feet out of Egypt, and you're already lost. You don't know. Y'all can't. Look, y'all are slaves. You need somebody to tell you what to do, and obviously I'm the one that needs to do it. So let me go back, and I'll be a gracious father, and I'll come out, and I'll bring you back, and I'll teach you what you can do, and you can work for me some more because that's really what I need. So he runs out, and he gets his chariots, and now they're chasing him down to bring him back home. So now we've got some conflict. Because they're not going by the straight road, they're going a different way. And God's leading them, and, and God leads them up to some water. These are people that, like, don't swim very much. Like, they're, they're kind of afraid. Now, it could be the Red Sea, like a, a big body of water that is just too deep to cross. It could be, like, a swampy area, a marshy area, that, like, once you get in it, you cannot run. Like, you're just stuck, and you're, you might be able to get across it, but it ain't going to be fun, and the cows are going to be real mad on the way, Right? So they come up to this thing, and they got this pillar, they've been following it, and it parks right in front of this water, and they're going, Moses, we got the chariots behind us now, like they're coming to kill us. Wouldn't it be better if they'd have just killed us back in Egypt? Why'd you bring us out here to die? This isn't even a pretty place to die. What are we going to do? Chapter 14, verse 13. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Yahweh will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And their GPS goes berserk. It led them up to this water, parks them there, and now it moves behind them. And in verse 14, or excuse me, chapter 14, verse 21, then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and Yahweh drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So they walk up to this water, and they freak out. And Moses says, shut up. Did you not see everything he just did in Egypt? Like, he can handle this. Just be quiet and watch what he's going to do. And he raises his staff, and the wind blows, and now there's a path through, and it's dry ground. So I don't care whether it's a little swamp that they have to cross or whether it's a whole sea. There's enough water that they can take all of their kids and all of their cows and all of the gold and silver that they just loaded up, and they are running through on dry ground, and God has made a way where there was no way, and God has their back. The one who was leading them is now behind them and protecting them. So so in, in verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them in the midst of the sea. All of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen in the morning watched the pillar of fire and of cloud look down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from before Israel for Yahweh fights for them against the Egyptians. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea that the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. 
And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, all of the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord had used against the Egyptians, so the people feared Yahweh, and they believed in him and in his servant Moses. So Egypt pursues. It seems like the GPS confuses them as they're going in. They're confused about where they're going. It gets harder for them to steer. They try to retreat, and they're drowned. So I don't know if the miracle is just the wall of water. I don't know if the miracle is the amount of water and the force of water coming back, crushing them. But whatever they drove into, they did not drive back out of. And the people seem to get it this time. Do you see that? I think, I think a light bulb goes off. It might, might be a little one. It might be one of those old-fashioned incandescent light bulbs that's battery-powered and those flashlights that you've got in the drawer, and you think, like, I'm going to save that for the hurricane, but then the hurricane comes, and the thing never worked quite right. It's just not bright enough. I think they got a light bulb. Israel saw the great power the Lord had used against the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord. Like, they got it. They got it. They understood. This is the thing that's going to define who we are for the rest of our time. This is going to be the way that we celebrate the new year. We're going to remember this. In fact, the whole next chapter in chapter 15 is a song they sing about how God has delivered them. Like, like, like I'm, I'm all for writing songs like to celebrate the things that God's doing. And that's what they do. They write some music and they sing a song. And it sounds like it's a happy song because they're dancing and they got tambourines. And wouldn't you dance a happy song too? Because you were face to face with a tank. And the Lord just washed it away. And all you had to do was keep your mouth shut. And I know that that was hard, but you did it. He says, this is going to be the first day of the year for you. So what does our calendar say about our gratitude for Yahweh's salvation? If we say, yes, I'm identifying myself with God's salvation. If we say, yes, I trust him, that that Jesus has done for me what I could never have done for myself, then what does our calendar say about who we actually think that we are? Where are the places that we're going? What's the time that we're spent doing? Are we in those places on mission for him? Are we in those places just trying to placate the gods of creation? What does our calendar say about our gratitude for God's salvation? Like, are we thankful that he's done what we could never do? Now, I'm aware. Let me take a step back. I'm aware that I'm in danger of allegorizing this whole story. Because we started and I said, this is about a specific family, right? And I'm not related to any of them. So God's telling a story about what he did with a specific kind of family that I'm not related to. And so I'm watching this story play out. And I'm also putting, like, my, I want to be in this story. Like, this is a good story. I want to be in it. But I'm not in it. But I'll tell you what. I think, and we'll spend some time on it. I think God went to great lengths to make sure that the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus happened at the same time of year that this happened. <coughs> That as Israel is celebrating Passover, as they're slaughtering lambs, God was not silent. He was raising up a leader who would be rejected by his people. 
And he was preparing a way for us also to be saved from the slavery and the sin that entangles us. What does our calendar say about our gratitude for God's salvation? So if you're new to faith, if, if, if this is like a story that you're just like getting into, this is, you're like, yeah, I'm right here. I'm excited. I got the energy. I'm singing the songs. I'm shaking the tambourine. Like, we're going to town. I'm ready about this. If you've been around for a while, you're like, yeah, I can remember that day. Young guys, back before my knees hurt. Like, I hope the world doesn't beat them up too hard. But how? 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 Here's the thing. God has some people that are lit- they're a blank slate. They've been imprisoned for their whole lives for generations. They only know one way of life. And he has so turned their world upside down. He's got a blank slate. He can write whatever he wants on the hearts of these people. He has brought them out. He has claimed, laid claim to them. He has delivered them. So how does he ask them to walk? Like, I want, I've got this faith. I've trusted in this salvation. Now I want to walk with Yahweh. How do I walk with Yahweh? Verse 22 of chapter 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days into the wilderness and found no water. Then they came to Marah. They could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. By the way, Marah is the Hebrew word for bitterness. You could have figured that one out. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord. And the Lord showed him a log and he threw it into the water. And the water became sweet. There, the Lord Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. So he leads them up to, like, they're going through a desert. They're, you know, there's no water there. Plot, like, we're all surprised to hear that. They come to a place and they're relieved to see there's some water. They go to drink the water. The water doesn't taste right. It's bitter. There's something wrong with it. So they're grumbling. And wouldn't you? We've been in the desert for three days and we've got nothing to drink. I got cows. I got kids. What are we going to do? And God says, listen, all, all creation is mine. All creation serves me and I know it best. Check that log in there. Now, I don't know if the log had some kind of medicinal properties to make it sweet. I don't know if it was a filtration thing or I don't know if it was just a, 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 an illustration of I just need you to do something and I'll fix it. But God teaches them something here. If you will listen diligently to my voice and if you walk in my way, walk in step with me, then I won't put the diseases that I put on the... I won't bring those judgments down on you, for I am your healer. There's times where, like, we can say something and we can know something, we can have the information, and it just doesn't matter, right? So I think three days ago, if God would have showed up and said, hey, I need you to listen to me, I'll be your healer, I'd be like, okay, cool. Great, God. Happy Sunday? What do, what do I say to that? But after three days, and after no water, they're in a position where they might actually hear and care what it is that God has to say. You've put your trust in all the structures of Egypt. You've put your trust in the medicine and the education of Egypt. And I've brought you to a place now where I'm making you well. Okay, can I just read in between the lines real quick? They drank the water. The water was bitter. And then God said, I'm your healer. 
that's gastrointestinal digestive issues that's happening in the camp. So they're pooping all over themselves. And God then says, I'm your healer. Listen to me. He's got a blank slate. He's got these people. He wants to teach them how to walk with him. And this is something that he does. It seems mean, doesn't it? Like, it seems mean for God to, like, let them thirst and to let them drink bitter water that's going to make them sick. Like, that seems harsh. But it gives them ears to hear when he says, I need you to walk in step with me. I need you to hear my voice and listen and follow because I will lead you in the way that is good. If you'd asked me before you dove your face in, then maybe we could have fixed this before you drank your fill. God shapes them by their thirst. Do we let our needs drive us towards God or away from him? Because I think there's times where we come face to face with needs and we're like, why is God doing this to me? I thought he said he loved me. I thought he said he'd never leave me. I thought he said he'd always be there for me. And we're mad at him. He says, I'm just trying to get you to open your ears, Mike. Do we let our needs drive us towards God or away from him? If you'll walk with me, I'll be your healer. Okay, so how do I walk? Chapter 16, 1 through 3. They set out from Elim. Oh, let me say too. In, chapter, in verse 27, of the, they came to Elim, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. They camped there by the water. So having left that, they counted the number of trees. Like they, that was a really beautiful picture of God's provision of like, this is a fresh water, and there were 70 trees. And I remember that place like, like it was yesterday. Okay, then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. It is astonishing how quickly we can convince ourselves that where we came from was better. There was never a day in Egypt where they sat around meat pots and ate until they were full. They were slaves. They were builders. They had just enough to keep them going. And then they didn't think twice about doubling their work. Like they were not treated well, but now they're faced with a little bit of hunger. They're a little bit hangry and they're going, remember when we used to eat everything we wanted back in Egypt? We should have just stayed there. We never should have followed you anywhere. I can't believe you brought me out here. And for as critical as I want to be about the nation of Israel, I know my own heart well enough to know that I see the grass as greener over every other fence. I'm sometimes convinced that church was better when we were kids. Or the country was better I listen to the songs on the radio and go, this is not even really music. What are they even doing here? Like, I just want that, I just want that old type of rock and roll, you know what I'm saying? We must not mistake God's mercy as deserved. God didn't pick Israel because they were the best. He didn't pick them because they were the brightest. He didn't pick them because they had the most pristine faith. Like, they have shown over and over again that they are stumbling all over themselves to trust God. And can you believe how he has just patiently extended his hand and continued to invite them, just walk with me, just walk with me, just walk with me, just walk, keep your mouth shut, just walk with me, just walk with me. 
We must not mistake God's mercy as deserved. But he gets to the point in verse 4. He might want to underline it. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether or not they will walk in my law, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel at evening, you shall know that it was Yahweh who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of Yahweh because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? God wants to test them. And he wants to test them with their calendar. He wants to test them with what their weekly rhythm looks like. Here's the deal. I'm going to feed you. Walk with me. I'm going to feed you. Okay, okay, how do I do that? Okay, all right, here's what's going to happen. Five days, it's going to rain bread. You go out, you get exactly what you need for the day. Just, just get what you need for the day, you and your family, that's all you need. And that's what you're going to eat today. Okay, cool. Day two, just what you need. Day three, just what you need. Day four, just what you need. Day five, just what you need. Okay, go out and gather. I'm not bringing it to you. I'm not going to put it on your kitchen. Like, you're going to have to go out, and you're going to have to pick it up, and you're going to have to count it out, and you're going to have to measure it, but then you're going to come back, and it's going to be exactly what you need for the day. Five days, get just what you need. Day six, get twice as much as you need. Now, I know that in the five days before, if you tried to keep some extra left over, then it would go bad, but that's not going to happen on day six. You get twice as much as you need on day six, and on day seven, stop and eat the second half of day six. Gather five days, twice as much day six, rest. Gather five days, twice as much day six, rest. Gather five days, twice as much day six, rest. Gather five days, twice as much the seventh day. He's got a blank slate. He's got people that I think might be willing to listen to him now. And he says, if you want to walk with me, the way you walk with me is, is, is the rhythm of your life reflects your walk with me. Spend time with me. Collect what you need for the day with me. I will give it to you. I will give you exactly what you need for you and for your family. And rest. Here's our big idea. We took a long time to get to it. Trying to tie all of the ideas that we've talked about together, we must not mistake God's instruction for tyranny. Because I think I probably could have very easily come up and said, you guys need to take a break. You guys need to have a Sabbath. You guys need to take Saturday off and stop all your work in, and, I, and we could walk out of here and feel kind of guilty about it. But, but that's, that's the application, but I don't think that's the point. We must not mistake God's instruction for tyranny. God's not telling us what to do just because he's on a power trip and he wants to make sure that he can micromanage every moment of our lives. He knows us. He made us. He designed us to walk with him. And he knows that part of the way that we walk with him is we have a healthy rhythm week over week. And that we come to him multiple times a year and celebrate and remember, because we're quick to forget, remember the things that he's done. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Israel, the land of Egypt. Ugh. 
But we must not mistake God's instruction for tyranny. He's not just trying to micromanage and destroy your life. He's a good father who wants you to live and have a healthy life. He says, I gave you, I asked you to take a day off, not because like, I wanted to make your life difficult, but because I wanted you to live and breathe and enjoy my creation. I could have very easily just given you all the nutrients you needed in oatmeal, but I chose instead to not only give you more than oatmeal, to give you taste buds that you might enjoy it. I am a good father. Would you please enjoy what I've laid before you? I didn't just deliver you out of slavery. I delivered you out of slavery and am bringing you into a good and fruitful land. I didn't just take you out and make sure that you had like freedom. I also gave you the provision that you would need to set up a new life. I didn't just open the prison door. I filled up your, your bank account on your way out. Now walk with me. Five days, gather what you need for the day. Six days, gather twice as much. Seventh day. Jesus does clarify in Mark chapter 2 that this Sabbath is for our benefit. It was made for us. I think I'd be offended if somebody put themselves on my calendar. Someone came up to me and said, Hey, Mike, uh, you're going to meet with me um, this, this whole week. What? I got, I got things I'm doing. I'd be real offended if that same person was like, okay, also, I'm going to come and I'm going to eat every meal with you. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a part of every single meal that you have. I would be offended, right? You don't get to do that to me. I've got priorities and I've got things. But does it change if that person is our deliverer? If he says, remember where you came from and remember what I have done. Once a year, Remember. That seems like a real small ask. And then dine with me. Let me be a part of every time you eat. Will we walk in step with Jesus? I spend so much time running through my life and just begging Jesus to keep up with me. Hey, Jesus, if you could just get a step ahead so that you could catch this before I... And then I'll come up here and we'll do this. And I'll jump shot and your alley-oop and then we'll score. And he's like... Bro, just walk. Shut up and walk with me. I'm not on your timetable. You're living in my world on my timetable. So will we walk in step with Jesus? Not because he's a tyrant, but because he knows what's best for us. Let's pray together. I spend a lot of time thinking about these big kind of philosophical questions, what our identity is based on. I don't know if everybody thinks like that. But I hope that this time together asking those questions has been fruitful. Lord, if there's been anything in here that has been um, just my opinion or a distraction from your word, Lord, I pray that that'd be forgotten real quick. But would your word stand true? Lord, I thank you that you love us enough to teach us. I thank you that you love us enough to cross enemy lines to win us to yourself. I thank you that you love us enough to sacrifice yourself that we might be made right with you. So, Lord, if there's anyone here this morning that has not yet 
moved towards you and said, I want to trust you for that salvation. God, I pray that you would be working on their heart this day. Or that you'd give them the faith to say, I trust you, Jesus. I don't necessarily get it all, but I trust you. And I want to walk with you. And for those of us who've been around the block with you a couple of times, who've gotten weary and maybe gotten way far away from those moments where we first trusted you, God, I pray that you I want to pray that you'd start rekindle a flame, but Lord, I just pray that you'd start something new. God, you're the creator. If we've waned in our our commitment, our devotion, or our love for you, God, would you um, birth in us new life? That we could approach um, some of the instructions you give to us not as... um, religious tyranny, not as just trying to put on a good show, but Lord, as a way to walk in step with you. And your goodness is that you meet us, you give us some forms, and you give us some shapes, and you meet us in spite of ourselves. So Lord, would you make us a community of people who put you first, who are defined by your salvation, who live generously and boldly for you, Would you give us what we need for today? And would you get your fingerprints all over our calendars? It's in your name I pray. Amen.